Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers. Welcome to this promised bonus sub-Bugle issue 4247, sub-episode A. We said it was coming, and here we are. Already, what, 15 seconds in, in fact, and as this sentence drags on, we could be... Well, you know, 25 or even 30 seconds in before you know it. Coming up on our recent live tour, audiences got to enjoy, if that is the correct word, puns, if that is the correct word, special puns, 2007 puns, and we've held them back until this hyper-special sub-episode, until right now, well, in fact, later in this show. Uh, We've also got some recent UK news. There was so much that we held some back for this week, and in no way has it dated radically as the UK continues to defy the very concept of time and progress. But before that, the Football World Cup. As you may know, we have a new series called Top Stories, link in the show notes, or whatever they are, and uh, this week it focuses on some classic World Cup moments, you know, from when the World Cup wasn't a a harrowing journey into the darkness of the human soul, including from episode 272. So as a prelude to that, here's the pre-Top Story excitement from 2014 in Brazil. with me, Andy Zaltzman, live in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I am heading back home in an hour. I just had to come out here to pick uh, pick my kids up. And as the last time, I tell them not to come home until they found one of the two largest Jesus statues in the world. Particularly as the one in Rio isn't even top two anymore. Equal third after the poles whacked up a 34-metre messiah a couple of years ago. Pair of losers. My kids, that is, not the Jesuses. Two of them, though. One did the tricks, one told the stories. Anyway, and joining me from... Rio de Janeiro, well, from New York, same ocean, basically same continent, different hemisphere, it's John Oliver! Hello Andy, hello Buglers, uh, quick story, no, there are no stories, there can be no opening stories this week Andy, nothing else is relevant, top story this week, World Cup, World Cup, it's the f***ing World Cup! <laughs> oh, World Cup Andy. World Cup um, John. Yeah. Well, World Cup, World Cup, the yeah. World Cup is here. Hamlet's last words Andy were... <laughs> The rest is silence, and I presume that what Shakespeare meant was that everything other than the World Cup is silence. In other words, everything other than the World Cup is pointless. Hamlet was so excited, Andy, he just died of joy thinking about future World Cups. That's what I took from the end of that play. The World Cup is nature's anaesthetic, Andy. <laughs> Nothing's going to hurt for the next few weeks until England get knocked out and it's over, and then everything is going to be pain. Everything. <laughs> pain everywhere. Uh, there are so many benefits to the World Cup, not to the host nation financially, but that's not the point. There are much bigger (laughs) considerations than that. I was thinking this morning, and I realised that for me, so much of what I know about the human body, Andy, is learned in the run-up to the World Cup from (laughs) medical reports on players. The only reason that I and most people in England know what a metatarsal is, is that David Beckham broke one in his foot in 2002, (laughs) and the whole nation decided to learn more about the human foot. And what I learned then has actually stayed with me. I learned that the human foot has five metatarsals, and the worst one to break is the fifth one. And if you break the second one, like David did, you'll be out for four to six weeks. That's what I know. (laughs) And this happened again, as I've indirectly received second-hand knowledge this week about malaria pills because the England team uh, are going to be playing in the Amazon uh, middle of the Amazon rainforest for uh, no clear practical reason (laughs) whatsoever and there have been in-depth reports all week in the English papers pointing out that the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine have prescribed (laughs) Malarone for the 23-man playing squad of 49 additional (laughs) travelling backroom and administrative staff and 
the England team apparently were given their first pill at breakfast on Tuesday, Andy. That is just good coaching. Before <laughs> a meal, you take it. Don't take it on an empty stomach. Good new, Great start to the World Cup, Andy. They took those malaria pills very effectively as a, as a unit. Yeah, well, I, I can testify to how difficult malaria pills can be from when I went to... Uh, to India, and uh, could not, for the life of me, get the mosquitoes to eat them. I mean, a lot of those pills are actually considerably bigger than than an actual mosquito. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Chop it up? It led to a spectacular statement from the England manager, Roy Hodgson, who said, to reassure people, the bottom line is, it's better to have stomach cramps than have someone contract malaria. <laughs> True, Roy. <laughs> True. He's Do you know what? That's the, again, that's good coaching, Andy, because that is true. Stomach cramps is better than malaria. He's got that written up on a whiteboard <laughs> with little m- magnets and arrows everywhere. Uh, he's the philosopher king of English football. Uh, so, well, um, it is a World Cup special. Uh, as always, some sections of the bugle going uh, straight in the bin this week. In the World Cup special, a number of sections in the bin, including a commemorative supplement detailing the World Cup's greatest nil-nil draws, chosen and explained by the legendarily defensive Italian tactical genius Gianluigi Plottigrozzi, who uh, evolved the uh, Italian Catanaccio defensive tactic into the even more defensive Doganaccio uh, and led small-town ASC blog... blog. Blagromio to the 1974 Scudetto title without conceding or scoring a single goal, still v- viewed as the high point in the history of Italian football. Also in the bin, a where were you when section. Celebrities tell us where they were when great World Cup moments happened, including Marlon Brando. Uh, when uh, Where was he when Brazil scored their legendary fourth goal in the 4-1 final win against Italy in 1970? Marlon says, I was on the Italian bench getting into character for the Godfather movies. Don Corleone started off as a left-sided midfielder in the Italian leagues. Uh, we talked to Red Rum. Where was he when Cruyff pulled off the Cruyff turn in 1974? Turns out he was standing in a field eating some grass. And we speak to David Seaman, England's goalkeeper, and ask him, where the f*** was he when Ronaldinho stuck one over his head from 40 yards in 2002? <laughs> Clearly, he has no f***ing recollection because he wasn't paying attention at the time. Uh, also uh, in the bin, a where are they now section. We catch up with heroes of past World Cups, including the winning goalscorer from 2010 Andres Iniesta where is he now he's still a footballer England squad player James Milner also starting to he's also still a footballer and the US forward Clint Dempsey still a footballer uh, and from 1930 Pablo Dorado the Uruguayan uh, goalscorer uh, the first goal in the final where is he now he's dead uh, Juan Batasso, the Argentinian goalkeeper in that game also dead and Bert Patenord America's star striker six goals in four games dead all those sections in the bin. Innocent times. Uh, now back to the UK. Formerly evil, stroke, naughty, delete according to preference, but highly competent. Now, well, we can barely tie our collective shoelaces without letting rip and shedding billions from the national coffers. Here's a bit from our birthday show about then-health secretary, assuming she hasn't been reappointed either between me recording this and you listening to this, or even me saying the words and the sound waves hitting the microphone, Therese Coffey. Uh, this show involved Felicity Ward and Anuvab Pal. In uh, other uh, British news, um, the uh, health secretary is trying to make people smoke more. Um, I mean, that's not technically true, but it's basically true. <laughs> Felicity, I know this, this story... Um, <laughs> so there's our, Why uh, do they always put their tongue out when they smoke a cigar? <laughs> put it back in, champion, you're a grown-up. Um, <laughs> um, Therese Coffey, obviously the spiritual heir to Churchill. 
Um, Felicity, I know you were fascinated by this, this, this story. Absolutely love this story. And I think it's actually really important. It is important to know that despite the many health warnings, smoking still does look incredibly cool. So that is something to bear in mind. Um, I uh, stopped smoking three and a half years ago. Unrelated. Um, thank you. It was the same day I found out I was four weeks pregnant and um, very unrelated. Um, And when I think of smoking, I think of Greece. I don't know if you've been to Greece before, but those people just love to dance with the idea of cancer. You cannot move for for smokers over there. Doctors, firemen, the babies are smoking. Everyone's going for it. And I absolutely love that they've read the pamphlets, they've read the statistics, they've got the books... And collectively, as a country, they've just said, oh, no, thank you. (laughs) Not for... They invented philosophy, democracy, yoghurt. I mean, they're so innovative. And, I mean, they invented the Hippocratic Oath. (laughs) And they're still pro-smoking. I think if they're into smoking, I'm into smoking. (laughs) Um, I mean, we've heard a lot from the the, the, the new uh, Tory regime about they don't want to be... You know, a, a nanny state, and they, you know, cutting back on programs to advise people on healthy eating and how to how to save money. But I mean, nannying is it's a bit more than just giving people some useful advice, isn't it? I don't remember the bit of Mary Poppins <laughs> um, where Mary says, "I wouldn't stick your fingers in that plug socket, kid. If you need me, I'll be in the <laughs> pub." Um, so, so I mean, we're not. So what they seem to be going for, rather than the nanny state, is a kind of method-addicted rogue uncle state where everything is just stripped from your home and there's nothing left. So, um. I there must be some kind of balance between the two, I think. I think it's actually a bit more like, uh, like aunt, drunk auntie energy. You know the, and the aunties when you're at Christmas, they're like, I'll meet you out the back, let's have a cheeky ciggy, don't tell grandma. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, Andy, new research will come out that'll say it's very good for the lungs. <laughs> Well, there has been research of that, uh, that effect in, in the past, I think. So maybe, maybe just going back to old science. We are like, taking Britain back. We're taking back control. We're taking back control of our lungs. Of, of, that's right, of uh, our self-destruction. <laughs> also uh, in Britain this week, um, there, uh, there's a probe launched into the festival of Brexit. <laughs> the so-called festival of Brexit, the unboxed um, <laughs> festival. Now, as you, you are, as I said, a relatively new convert, mm. Felicity, to the mm-hmm. holy state of ethereal spiritual perfection and guiltless glory that is being a British mm-hmm. um, citizen. So it must have been lovely for you in your first year of citizenship to have this nationwide festival expressing what being British really means. Oh, I love it. I absolutely. And the unboxed festival, like obviously that was, um, that's a that's a, a shorter name. But I found out that celebration of we bite the hand that feeds a shit show was <laughs> just too long to put on a banner. Um, look, the British citizen in me is appalled that all this taxpayers' money is going towards the festival of, of Brexit. The comedian, because it's been very poorly attended, like like what, a 1%. shocking one percent of the in, of the intended audience have turned up to these events. Right, that, those are words I've not heard since I did my first run at the Edinburgh Festival. <laughs> this is exactly what I mean. The British taxpayer in me is like, I don't want my money to go towards that. The comic in me is, you always lose money the first year, man. <laughs> Festivals are hard. We've all played small audiences, you know. <laughs> Um, 120 million pounds, uh, and you know it has caught you know an element of British culture. I think, unfortunately, the element that it's celebrated most vividly is our national ability to say, 
Ah, can't be arsed. That looks a bit shit. So, <laughs> this is a fundamental part of Britishness, Andy. I mean, every time I come, Andy, I, I see new good money-making ideas generating from this, this anti-growth country. <laughs> and, you know, this is a very good idea. Apparently, one of the public installations that they're doing is, a, is, a, is part of this festival of Brexit. It's called the Sea Monster. And it's an abandoned oil rig in Western Supermare that you can go and see and pay for. And it's just sitting there. And now, if this sort of thing is going to carry on, then what we could do back in India is we could take loads of people down the Mumbai sewers to see an... Ec- this is true. An excellent drainage system the British built in Victorian times. They can stare at their own feces. And we could call it the Festival of Empire. <laughs> there we go. We've left you a living metaphor. Um, uh, NATO, have you, have, you, um, have you been impressed by Britain's expression of its, uh, of its spiritual self? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, Organisers have claimed uh, that, so, although only 240,000 people have attended, um, they've claimed more than 4 million have engaged with it. Um, <laughs> albeit in the same way that you might engage with a roadkill ferret on a motorway. Um, either by not noticing it, or by noticing it and saying, oh, or by noticing it and saying, how on earth did that even happen? So, um, is, that a, is that your second rodent joke of the evening? <laughs> there's, there's rodents there, at the top? There's more. Oh. <laughs> I am standing by and I'm excited. And here now is some more recent UK news with actual Knight of the Realm, alleged bully and most fired man in government award winner Gavin Williamson. This one with Nish Kumar and Hari Kondabolu. UK news now, and uh, well it hasn't taken long, but Rishi Sunak's uh, um, fledgling government has been hit by its first resignation stroke sacking. Uh, Gavin Williamson, uh, former Defence Secretary, former Education Secretary, uh, recalled to the Cabinet on what can only be described as absolutely f***ing baffling grounds uh, has uh, resigned stroke been sacked uh, amidst bullying accusations. He was sacked by two previous Prime Ministers. He was sacked by um, Theresa May as defence when he was Defence Secretary for leaking discussions from a National Security Council meeting and he was sacked by Boris Johnson for losing the confidence of the entire education system by being unbelievably remorselessly f***ing useless at his job. He was then knighted um, <laughs> earlier this year. He was made a knight. I don't think he can even ride a horse. Um, and uh, then he was back in Cabinet as Minister Without Portfolio uh, in Rishi Sunak's attempt to shore up, I, I believe, what's known as the f***ing lunatic wing of the Conservative Party. It does slightly give... The, there's question marks about Sunak's judgment, uh, Nish, just a few weeks into his... And he already mm. brought Suella Braverman back as we, we talked about on the Bugle, just a few days after she'd been sacked. Um, and it does slightly give the impression that if Rishi Sunak was presented with that classic conundrum of having a fox, a chicken and some grain, and having to row them across a river in a little boat with them all intact, what he would do was uh, would be to put the fox and the chicken in the boat, shove the grain down his trousers, and then dive into the river. <laughs> <laughs> Claim that it was all going to plan, even as the bloodied feathers floated down onto his wet, wet head. So... I mean, what have you made of... Um, uh, well, well we've had- I think, look, I think appointing someone like Gavin... Appointing Suella Braverman, who, as we discussed, 
jumped while she was being pushed from her job uh, as Home Secretary uh, was seemed like a very strange move. And it largely uh, actually obscured the strangeness of rehiring Gavin Williamson because she, that had happened six days before she was given the same job. So it, it, she was sacked from a job or she quit. Either way, she uh, she quit her job. She was reinstated six days later by Sunak. And that obscured the fact that Gavin Williamson, who had again twice been fired for two different types of idiocy say what you will about the man he's a, a renaissance man of being fucking shit at everything and but it, that sort of caused and that sort of clouded rishi sunak's reputation for competence but here's the thing rishi sunak's reputation for competence is not based on his own competence during the pandemic he was our he was the chancellor he was in charge of our nation's finances and he pioneered a scheme that encouraged people to eat indoors in the summer of 2020 right to, he, his, his competence is it's only based on his predecessor rishi sunak's reputation for competence is entirely based on the fact that his predecessor as prime minister seems to have been breastfed from a car exhaust and it's <laughs> that's entirely what it's based on and what's become quickly apparent is rishi sunak is out of his depth i have never seen an asian man look more out of his depth since i caught sight of my own reflection during sex it's unbelievable <laughs> I laughed too hard. I'm sorry, Nish. <laughs> it, it's yeah. It's it, it's not what what you wanted. Um, uh, it, it, this start this close to the start of being prime minister. Um, uh, Harry, have you um, found the early sort of month or so we've had uh, of uh, of Rishi Sunak uh, watching I, on from America? I mean, it's kind of weird because a part of me is like. <laughs> Okay, so the queen died. That's cool. And then after she died, they elected. It's an Indian guy uh, running the UK. That's probably going to piss a lot of people off. Like, oh, the colonized is now in charge of the colonizer. Um, but then, uh, from what I've heard, he is still colonized. Um, is that accurate, Nish? Is that about, is that about right? Well, uh, let me put it in terms of the film Get Out, Harry. Uh, my concern would be if someone took a flash photo of Rishi Sunak, a single <laughs> tear would roll down his face. <laughs> and he'd take my hand very firmly and urge me to leave the establishment that we were both in. Could I take my old Bobby Jindal jokes and just use them yes. for this prime minister? Because... I I'm assuming that he's basically what Bobby Jindal has always wanted to be. And, you know, and I'm thinking, I don't really know much about this man, but could I just reuse those jokes? Uh, yeah, listen, we're talking about climate crisis. We've got to recycle where possible. And all South Asian comedians from America should be recycling their Bobby Jindal jokes for Richie Sunak. Noted. Noted. <laughs> Um, Rishi Sunak's predecessor, but one, uh, Boris Johnson, um, is set. Well, one of the weird things we have in this country, uh, and our American listeners would no doubt be able to relate to this, is resignation honours. So a departing prime minister can give knighthoods and other state honours to people. They submit a list, and uh, and including seats in the House of Lords. Now, a seat in the House of Lords is a seat for life in Parliament, and uh, Boris Johnson has appointed uh, on his 
Uh, Boris Johnson is trying to appoint on his resignation peerage list a shameful list of bootlickers, bimbos and <laughs> tropical island holiday facilitators who, between them, can be proud to have pushed trust in politics to an extreme low during their tenures and offered very little in return to the British people. Now, sorry for not being balanced. Uh, what I did there was I quoted from a Conservative MP. <laughs> a Tory MP describing Johnson's resignation peerages. Now, uh, that was a report on the Sky News uh, website. The, the reaction from everyone else can be summarised as, well, I know Johnson laid his cards on the table, but still, for f- sake um two of his advisors are set to be given a, this seat for life in our parliament for having advised a prime minister who took some of the least advisable decisions in the history of this country um so so why would you allow a departing prime minister this privilege i know in america Harry, you have uh, presidential pardons uh, where you basically legalize crime it's like the kind, of, kind of bizarre <laughs> plot that's right. of some that's right. some knockoff uh <laughs> Uh, sci-fi film or something. Uh, well, I mean, in Britain, what this is is part of the British method of political corruption. What we, what we have done, we have baked it into our system. We give it a fancy title and ideally some strange clothing involving some sort of dead animal. And bingo, we have fully formalised and normalised the kind of graft that in less civilised, less democratically advanced countries would take years of behind-the-scenes effort <laughs> and millions, if not billions, of dollars. That is the British... British We're word. number one. We're <laughs> number one. It makes Indian politics seem a little bit more reasonable once again, right? Because this is, you have to go through all that work instead of, okay, here's an envelope full of like a hundred lakhs. Go. <laughs> yeah. I said earlier that uh, American politics was like Tenet. Uh, British politics is like a film that stars Kevin Spacey that came out recently. <laughs> <laughs> It, yeah, it's a it's a source of uh, deep national embarrassment. Uh, it's it, it's a very strange thing that people can just be, you know, given the position of power and be sort of sat in the House of Lords for as long as they want. That's that's weird anyway. The fact that we have the fact that our Parliament, which claims to be the mother of democracy, <laughs> has just one bit of it that has people called lords in it is unbelievable. <laughs> Like, none really, of that should have happened. Yeah, and so with with Gavin Williamson, I mentioned he was knighted, so he's now technically Sir Gavin Williamson, and the yeah. convention is that he's then referred to in news reports and news broadcasts as Sir Gavin, not as Williamson, and it, it annoys the living f*** out of me. Uh, yeah, especially honest. when the news report in question is referring to the fact that, because the, the reason that Gavin Williamson has had to quit is that uh, several allegations have been made about bullying uh, within uh, various government departments, uh, including Williamson taking real umbrage at not being invited to the Queen's funeral and inviting uh, one civil servant to slit their throat. <laughs> so, I yes. Mean, which is impolite. It's not knightly behaviour, yeah, is it? It's not knightly behaviour. Um, well, I'll tell you what is knightly behaviour. Slitting someone else's throat. Not this <laughs> lazy knight bullshit. Oh, God, please go and slit your own throat. Listen, Gavin Williamson, if you're a fucking knight of the realm, take a sword in your hand and take matters into your own hands. Not Although only I, is he rude, he's lazy. I do think he should have been invited to the Queen's funeral, just... You know, I think they, they knock on the Pope's coffin, and when a Pope dies, they knock on the coffin to check that he's definitely dead. And I think if Gavin Williamson had been at the funeral... There's quite a good chance that the Queen would have burst out of her coffin and said, "Get that!" And she still be with us today. Uh- <laughs> 
And now to wrap up this sub-episode, here's what you paid your money for. If you have indeed paid money, if you want to pay money, go to thebuglepodcast.com and click the donate button. Well, it's from our 15th anniversary show, and it's, well, a very special 15th anniversary pun run, recorded in Dublin in front of a live and, let's say, thoroughly enjoying themselves crowd, with Alice Fraser and Chris Addison suffering stroke joining in via the wonders of the internet. Right, um, well I think we should finish off by maybe looking back to 2007, uh, since it is our 15th anniversary, and what was going on in the world in October 2007. Um, Because the very week that the Bugle started, now 15 years and what, two, three weeks ago, um, there was a major United Nations meeting, and I had a friend who actually worked at the United Nations at the time, uh, and he was running all the various competitions to keep the world leaders uh, interested in kind of the social side of it. No. And, uh, <laughs> no. And he met, he, met all the, he met all the world leaders uh, of Don't the time. Don't do it, Andy. <laughs> what? <laughs> First rule of showbiz, Chris, give the people what they want. I think we're saying the same thing. Um... Uh, and my, my mate was working at the UN. He met all, met all the world. He's met the uh, the Chinese leader at the time. Uh, he said he was a very interesting man who, uh, interestingly, made all of his money selling cloths for people to dry themselves with, and was still a world leader in that market. He was huge in towels. <laughs> Audience, you cannot leave unless you test negative. <laughs> Run for the doors. Um, the uh, the Libyan leader. He gave a he gave a speech, but it was absolutely rubbish. And my mate bumped into him afterwards. I said, that wasn't very good, mate. And he said, well, I still got paid for it. And my mate said, you got a fee? Colonel! No. Uh, then he met the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what stage of his career that was taken, but... There must have been a moment. Do you remember how he died with the, the metal pole inserted where metal poles are not? There must have been a moment when he thought to himself... Yeah, I had that coming. Uh, uh, so my mate at the UN, he, he, uh, he met the Zimbabwean leader uh, at, the time, was at the fancy dress party, actually. And uh, he, he looked a bit nervous, and so my mate went up to him and said, you all right? He said, well, I'm not sure about my costume. Uh, and he'd come as a highwayman, but also wearing kit that Neil Armstrong wore on his lunar mission. And he said, my friend, do you like it? And it, my mate said, I don't know, it's a bit robber moon garby. <laughs> and uh, he was a bit stressed already, because... Uh, He'd given a lift to the German Chancellor, um, but he'd, he'd had to borrow a car. He borrowed this really posh German car, uh, a Benz, in fact, from a mate of his. But his mate was then late back from his fishing trip, and he des- my friend described it as his Angela Merck hell. <laughs> but um, we never really recovered. He can't drive now, but um, I remember my mate... He- uh, he, was, um, he was speaking to this about, with the Afghan leader. Um, and he, so whenever, he, whenever he was drunk, he always got very maudlin about the fact that he'd never be able to drive his Lamborghini again. Uh, um, and, uh, but uh, you know, he came to recognise when he was really upset about something and when it was just his, uh, his hammered car sigh. <laughs> um, and uh, he, lent, he lent a car to the, uh, the Spanish king, but he, he parked it in New York and then couldn't find it again. After, and then just never got it back again. And I said, that must have been annoying. And he said, well, Andy, it was just one car lost. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, so my mate was judging the cookery competition that the leaders held. There was this big cookery competition. And the Syrian despot, he tried this really weird recipe. He cooked a roadkill 
animal, like that he found from the English countryside, but in the style of a recipe by a famous 18th century French writer who was renowned for his pioneeringly filthy <laughs> pornographic stories. Yes, he cooked them badger a la sard. <laughs> Um, the, uh, the Russian leader, he just, uh, in the cookery competition, just did some potatoes with cheese and gravy, ca uh, Canadian style. And, uh, my... And, uh, and, uh, my, my mate said it wasn't very good, but because he's kind of intimidating, I felt I had to tell him that it was, it was really quite tasty. Yes, I had to flatter a mere poutine. <laughs> oh, yeah, you can't handle the truth! I do feel, Andy, if you're, if you're having to illustrate the puns with the people so we know what you mean. <laughs> uh, the uh, the uh, UK Prime Minister, he carved an apple medusa for the cookery competition, but he forgot to wrap it overnight, and when he came down in the morning, it had discoloured. Oh, no, he said. Oxidation, it's turned my gorgon brown. <laughs> it's... Uh, his predecessor, his predecessor happened to be there uh, as well. He got sick. He, he was one of the judges. He got sick eating all the food. He ended up kind of bent double, tried, like, stretched out, touched the end of his lower limb, then touched, touched the middle of his legs and just vomited everywhere. Toe, knee, bleh! Uh, it, was, um, it was won by the French president. He got a choice of prizes. They'd been donated by uh, the top golfers from the 1960s and 70s. They'd given the items they used to keep their pets warm in and they all had aquatic animals. He had to... Choose the prizes uh, from uh, Arnold Palmer's turtle sleeping bag, Gary Player's dolphin onesie, but in the end he went with Jack Nicholas Shark Cozy. Oh. Um. They're actually hurting you now, aren't they? <laughs> Uh, there were other, other competitions as well. The British head of, head of state was there. Uh, she was entering uh, uh, her pets in competitions for smartest fish and nicest reptile. And, uh, but she had a bit of a problem, uh, the Queen, with her goldfish, whose scales were looking a bit dull, and her gecko, which had halitosis. And she said to my friend, I'm going to have to sort this out. Shinier skin for my fish is my first priority, and cleaner lizard breath the second. <laughs> What have I become? What do you mean become? There were interesting uh, lectures too. The head of the Catholic Church, uh, he gave a, a lecture about the medical issues um, of 17th century British poets. Uh, they, all of them had very embarrassing personal bodily issues. But the Pope got a bit confused. He was trying to do his speech without notes. And he said uh, at one point, I know uh, one of them, one of these poets from the 17th century had a scrotum-related skin issue. Another had rather troublesome wind, and one of them, who'd had 15 other health issues previously, had a curious curvature of the wang shortly before he died. But who was who? Oh, I remember now. It was Milton, eczema on his buttocks, Dryden, flatulence, and Pope, Bendy Dick, the 16th and <laughs> final illness of his life. Oh, God. And there can be no more appropriate way to finish this gig. <laughs> um. Oh, yeah. 
I'll tell you what. There's a couple I haven't done on this tour. I'm, I'm going to oh, do you're another. You're joking. <laughs> no, no, no. I, um, there was. Uh, they also had a music video competition. The uh, Amer American president he'd superimposed his vocals on pop videos by a great female vocalist of the 1980s. Uh, it was he was fine uh, when he was like doing Tina Turner and Cindy Cindy Lauper, but he couldn't really do the high, the high notes, and he ended up getting the. Uh, the uh, massive James Bond baddie from Moonraker, who had a surprisingly high falsetto voice when he sang. And he ended up uh, doing the vocals on uh, his, uh, his cover version of Wuthering Heights. And my friend said to him, I can't believe it. Did Jaws dub your bush? <laughs> well, can't believe you didn't do that one before, Andy. <laughs> so good. <laughs> right. I mean, there were more. Uh, but, uh, oh. oh, no, Andy, I'm sorry. You're so no. good. You're like a delicate, precious flower that's covered in toxic waste. you! <laughs> right. Second rule of showbiz, Chris, always leave yeah. them wanting... Always leave them wanting considerably less. Achieved. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, at the end of it all, uh, uh, my, my mate bumped into the Iranian leader. He wasn't very well at the time. He had to have all his food intravenously, injected by a syringe. Um, but he was really down and lacking in energy. Uh, and then uh, <laughs> he said, I need something to lift my mood. Ah, oh, my dinner jab. Okay. <laughs> works like that. More? <laughs> no, no, you've got to finish. Because I, I know we, when I first did the puns, it was with John Oliver, and I sometimes think, John, how would uh, he, he oh, deal with it? No. Oh, Jesus Christ. Come on. Right. I'm just trying to think, there were probably about 156 global leaders at the time. Yeah. And I was thinking of... Yeah. I don't know, just calling my wife and children and telling them I love them. <laughs> um, I, my mate was quite impressed and intimidated by the... Uh, um, he, he met the, uh, the Egyptian leader, the uh, Egyptian leader, oh. and uh, he was impressed and intimidated. The finely honed upper body physique of, uh, of this young rising star of the Democratic Party was there at the time, the Egyptian leader. Who of course, went on to become the first black president of the USA. And uh, when, when he was... You know, kind of impressed by someone, the Egyptian lady, just speaking this strange kind of Scottish accent. And he said, there's no fat on his chest. He has no moobs, Barak. <laughs> well, no, I, think, I, think, I think we found the breaking point. I think this is... I think we found the breaking point. I'm right. pretty sure this is... Never mind breaking point. I think this is legally now a hostage situation. <laughs> <laughs> right, well... Um, I would say you asked for it, and some of you did. Uh, uh, well, I think that's time to wrap up this gig, Chris. It's the problem with democracy, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that was very much a satire on the Boris Johnson years. Um, uh, that concludes this week's uh, Bugle. Uh, there will not be a Bugle next week. I'm currently immersed in a uh, family emergency, but we will have some more uh, Bugle content for you, and then we'll, we'll be back 
with a full bugle uh, as soon as possible and practical. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.